Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Save the Children is an NGO based in Fairfield, Connecticut, with a staff worldwide that works in conflict zones and here in the U.S. Canton native Carolyn Miles leads the organization, and we sat down with her as part of our Making Her Story series. Miles says she didn't intend to work in the nonprofit world. She has an MBA from the University of Virginia, but she told us before an audience at Ridgefield Playhouse earlier this week that she went to Bucknell University for her undergrad, where she earned a degree in animal behavior. Actually, I would say my animal behavior major has come in very handy as a leader, <laughs> just, just to mention. Um, but I really liked psychology. I really liked science. Um, I actually had originally thought I wanted to be a vet. Um, and then I worked for a vet one summer, and I figured out that I fainted whenever you cut skin. And the vet, after three times landing on the floor, he said, you know, I don't think this is for you. I think this is not going to work. So, but I loved the I loved the uh, the science and the, the 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 rigor of the curriculum. So I stuck with it, and then you know went off to just do what most college students do and want, which is to get a job where you can pay the rent. Mm-hmm. So, who were your mentors growing up? Uh, we, again, we hear often uh, because I'm a, a host uh, of a daily talk show. We talk to people from many different backgrounds. And, and when I speak with women who have become leaders in their fields, um, we hear from some of them who will say, you know, I didn't think that I could do this because that wasn't what was in front of me and I wasn't encouraged uh, uh, to do uh, this particular field that I'm in now. Uh, there are the uh, stereotypical fields for women. Uh, I spoke with a retired FBI agent mm-hmm. and she mentioned, you know, a lot of women at the time were going into nursing school, but I didn't want to be a nurse. So I'm curious who helped shape your ambition. Well, you know, it's interesting. I would say that it was a mix of both men and women. I think a lot of women um, who are successful in their careers uh, point to just women that kind of helped them. But I have to say that some of my first bosses were, were men, which when I first got out of college, um, that's, you know, most bosses were men. So, but they were really supportive of me and the career that I was pursuing. And so that was both that in my first job as a sales rep out in the Midwest, where I was the first uh, female sales rep that had ever worked in this particular, Indiana, Illinois, that area. Um, I had a really supportive boss, super supportive. And then when I worked at American Express, again, um, a couple of men, but there, there was a particular woman when I worked at Amex that was a real role model for me. And the reason was because she was so great at drawing a line between family and work. And she showed me that you actually could have a career and you could have a family. And that was important to me because I, at that point in time, I had just been married for a couple years, and we knew we wanted to have children, but I also was balancing how do I make sure that, you know, I can do anything that I want to do in terms of my career. And she was 
I think, really good at saying you can do both, but you do have to kind of draw some lines, too. Mm -hmm. And um, that was one of the things that I really took from that experience at American Express. I want to get into that work-life balance because mm -hmm. we, we, we all struggle with that um, when we have full-time careers but also uh, family obligations at home. But you said something earlier that you were the first female sales rep in mm -hmm. that particular region you were working yes. in while you had a supportive male boss. How did others uh, perceive you and interact with you? Well, it was interesting. Um, so I was young. I was 22. And my customers were all men. I had no female customers that I called on. It was all men, usually typically in their 50s and 60s, so much older. And um, I think at first they kind of thought, oh, that's cute. Here comes this, you know, young girl who's basically in this new role. But I think after a while, they figured out that I was really serious about the job, and I worked really, really hard. And so you could see that how they interacted with me really changed over time. And I think the lesson there is that you know, hard work uh, really does make a huge difference in terms of how people see you, whether you're a woman or a man, and it can kind of transcend some of what people, the stereotypes that people might have of you. And I think that's what made a big difference in those early days. You went on to uh, go towards an MBA at University mm -hmm. of Virginia. Yeah. Uh, what made you make that decision? Yeah, I, um, I knew I wanted, I loved marketing, and I loved figuring out kind of why people did things, and um, I went to talk to, to that boss that I talked about, the, the one who was so supportive, and he said, well, you could either kind of keep doing what you're doing, it'll take you four or five years, or you could go back to business school and, you know, get a marketing uh, degree at business school, and you could probably do that a little bit quicker. And I had always wanted to go to the University of Virginia, and I didn't get in as an undergrad, so I thought, here's a good opportunity, I'll try again. So um, so went and got my MBA. When you got your MBA, you headed to the corporate world. Is it American Express right off the bat? Yes, yep. So I went to New York. Um, I actually got married, married a business classmate of mine, and um, ended up taking a, a role at, at American Express in New York and worked there for a couple years and then had the opportunity to go overseas. And that was... Um, you know, I would say that was a real turning point uh, for me, both personally and uh, professionally, and really led to some very, very different things um, that I did while I was there. Uh, explain that turning point and why you made yep. that decision. Not everyone is comfortable leaving yep. uh, their comforts, uh, an area or town or lifestyle that they know to move abroad. I understand you worked in Hong Kong. Yep. What was the, the difference in culture and, and what did you encounter when you, when you made that leap? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, one of the things that's really important is that you take advantage of opportunities um, because you might not get those opportunities again. And so when this opportunity came up, uh, one of the things American Express didn't actually give you a choice of where you wanted to go. So I went, came home and I said, and I, there were only a couple people that were picked for this program every year. So I went home and I said to my husband, hey, you know, there's this great opportunity, we get to go live overseas, and he said, that'd be great, and where will we go? And I said, I don't know, and he said, okay. So it also takes a partner that's willing, I think, in these kinds of things to, to go with you, but um, it, was, it was a real turning point because for me, first of all, going overseas, living in Hong Kong, I had never lived abroad. I had traveled a little bit, but not a lot. Um, 
And the culture there was in some ways very westernized, but in some ways uh, not at all. And it was, uh, Hong Kong was also going through this really interesting time because it was, it was going to Chinese rule. So it was going from British rule to Chinese rule during the time we were there in the early 90s. And um, really interesting to see that cultural shift and to see it become a much more Chinese city than it had been. It had really been a British city. So having the opportunity to, to live there and see that and the opportunity to work with my colleagues who were really, there were very few you know, Westerners in that office. It was almost all uh, Hong Kong Chinese. And, um, and it was just a great experience with a completely different, in some ways a completely different culture, but one that still had some things that felt familiar. And meanwhile, you were raising your children? Yes, I was raising two, two at the time of my kids. So we found out a week before we went to Hong Kong that we were pregnant with our first child. Not really in the plan. So um, it turned out to be a great place, though, to have kids. So fantastic place to have kids. Although I didn't tell anybody I was pregnant for about five months, and they just thought I really liked the food. And I really liked dumplings. So at once I told my colleagues, they were like, oh, good, that makes us feel better. Um, but it, it was, it turned out to be a great place to have children. And so we had two of our, uh, our kids while we were there. And one of the things we did um, while we were in Hong Kong is we traveled a lot because we figured we're very far from home. Um, we don't know when we'll be back in this part of the world. So we, we dragged these two little kids uh, all over Asia with us on many, many trips. And that's really, I think, for me when my life really started to take a turn um, because the poverty that you see, so we went to places like Thailand and Vietnam and southern China and um, uh, Korea, South Korea, and you really see a different level of poverty there than you see. We have lots of poverty here in the United States. I was just in Mississippi last week, so we can talk about that later. But the poverty that, you, that we saw there was, was very um, deep. But for me, the confrontation of that reality, I think, really changed the way I thought about the world. Um, that I think growing up in Pittsburgh, you know, I kind of thought of the world as a pretty equal place. Um, and when you confront poverty like you see in many parts of the developing world, you realize that the world is actually a very unequal place, especially for children. And so that's really what, what turned me in the direction of, of Save the Children. Did your children at the time ask you about what they were seeing? How did you describe uh, the lives that you were encountering yes. to your children who uh, were living a life of privilege? Yeah. I mean, they were pretty young, so I'm not sure that they totally got it at the time. And we've traveled a lot since then, and so they, they get it a lot more now. Um, but there was this particular moment that and we were, in, uh, we were in the Philippines, and we were um, on vacation going from the airport to Manila in a fancy car with a driver, and um, this was when I was working for American Express, and I was sitting in the back seat with my six-month-old, and my two-year-old was sitting beside me, and we, at every stoplight on the way from the airport to Manila, when you stop, there's somebody begging at the, at the window um, because there's these huge slums that line the road from the, the airport to the city. 
And so a woman came up to the car window and she looked at me and she was holding a baby in her arms who was probably about the same age as Patrick, as my son. And that moment when we looked at each other, that's when for me it just this really, I had been thinking about it, but this deep understanding that, you know, my son was going to have every opportunity that you could ever have. He was born to two, by world standards, incredibly well-educated, wealthy, we are not wealthy, but by world standards we are, parents, and he could do anything. And the baby that I was looking at and the mom that I was looking at, that baby would have no opportunity. That baby was going to grow up in that slum that was sitting right by the side of the road, and that baby would have so few opportunities. And that inherent unfairness um, was really what brought me to save the children and doing the work that, that we try to do around the world. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Carolyn Miles is my guest today as we learn more about Save the Children, based in Fairfield, Connecticut. Our conversation was recorded at Ridgefield Playhouse this week, part of our Making Her Story series. Coming up, we learn how the nonprofit works abroad and here in the U.S. You can join the conversation. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Carolyn Miles is an advocate for children worldwide. She's the first female president and CEO of Save the Children, a nonprofit based in Fairfield, Connecticut. I spoke to Miles before an audience at Ridgefield Playhouse earlier this week. I asked her to explain how her nonprofit differs from its parent organization, Save the Children UK. It's a fantastic organization whose name says a lot about what we do, Save the Children. Everything we do is focused on kids. And we work in three areas, health, education, and protection of children. And um, about five years ago, this will give you a good idea of what we do, we set three goals uh, to 2030. We said there are three things that we want to change for children. We want no child to die of preventable deaths. And there are about almost six million kids that die every year of preventable things. We want every child to get a high-quality basic education, starting with early education everywhere in the world. And we want to protect kids from harm and change the way that the world thinks about violence against children. So those three things are what we set out to do. And everything we do ladders up to one of those three things. We work in 120 countries. And the most important thing about what we do is we try to reach the kids who are at the very end of the line. So the most deprived kids, the ones who are most missing out on health care or education or protection during a, during a crisis. And that's really what we focus on all around the world. And the U.S. organization is the largest part of this federation. So it's a federation. It's not a corporate structure like we think of one with some ultimate person that everybody reports up to. And our job is to do programs here in the United States. So we work in 16 states here in the US focused on literacy in the poorest rural communities. And then we support programs in 50 countries and we raise funds, we raise awareness, and we help design those programs that our colleagues then out in the country offices actually implement. One of the most important things I think about Save the Children is that the work that we do is driven by people in the countries where we work. So in Nigeria, it's driven by Nigerians. In Ethiopia, it's driven by Ethiopians. In Nepal, by Nepalese. And the reason that's so important is that these are the people who understand 
what most needs to happen for kids in those countries. What most, what's most difficult in changing behavior or changing policy or changing practice in those countries. I want to learn more about the work that you're doing abroad, but since you mentioned the fact that you work, Save the Children works in 16 different states uh, uh, among the, the poorest populations uh, in these particular states, you know, I'm curious about the work that you're doing. We hear so often there are limited resources, mm -hmm. and I, I'm curious about, you know, uh, in the next few minutes, talking about how you get that support that's not governmental support. Yes. Uh, but how do you choose where to put your staff and the kinds of work that you're doing yeah so we look at the worst places for children basically so you look at the statistics and you look at where those statistics are the worst and that's the places where we try to go and it's not always possible to go there in some countries it's really difficult to work in those places because it might be a conflict zone so northern Nigeria or Yemen or South Sudan or some of the places we work that are really tough um, but we do look for where the statistics for health and education and protection are the worst, and that's where we try to go. We really focus, in the U.S., that's in poor rural states. So if you look at poverty in the United States, for example, and there's a report that we're going to release uh, in, in just a couple weeks that really highlights this, the worst statistics for kids are in rural communities in the U.S., in places like Duncan, Mississippi, where I just was, where... You know, the average um, support for kids there per pupil in school is like a third of what you might find here in Connecticut, for example. And kids, there's very few books in the schools. There's no phys ed anymore. There's no uh, art classes. Those things are just seen as luxuries. And though we work inside schools in these very poor rural communities focused on literacy. Who supports this work? When you look at the breakdown yep. of the dollars you receive, how much of that is coming from the U.S. government? Yep. How much is that coming from private donors? And are you seeing a decline in the type of resources being allocated for you to do that work? Yeah. So I guess what I would first say is anybody who cares about children, um, we want them to join us as a donor. Our funding is really diverse. About 35% of our funding comes from the U.S. government. That's for both our domestic and our international programs. About 10% of our funding is U.N. agencies. So a lot of U.N. agencies like UNHCR, which is a refugee organization, or UNICEF, give funding to save the children. And then that's about 45 to 50%. The other 50% uh, we raise from private sources. And again, it's really those kids with their piggy banks all the way up to very wealthy donors, corporations, foundations, schools, and, and all sorts of people uh, who are interested in the work that we do for kids. And, you know, the government funding, actually, you would think in this administration that might be tougher. Um, we've actually had some real wins. We spend a lot of time on advocacy uh, in Washington, standing up for kids because kids don't vote. And so they don't really have a voice, and Save the Children uh, is a voice for, for children in D.C. And we've actually had some real wins here in the U.S. on the domestic agenda, Head Start funding. Um, some of our uh, funding for early childhood has actually been well supported by this administration. The international piece, not quite as much, but we have worked really hard to keep those budgets you know, up as much as we can. 
And, you know, one of the things, and I do spend a lot of time in Washington, and one of the things that I say to people is, you know, investing in poor communities internationally, yes, we have lots of problems here in the U.S., and we work here in the U.S., so I, I will talk to you about Head Start and all these other programs, but investing in poor countries is a smart thing for the United States to do. It keeps us safe. It develops markets for our corporations. If you look at most corporations here in the United States, the majority of their of their uh, business now is not here in the U.S. It's it's overseas, so there's a huge amount of business that goes on, and building those markets and building societies that actually can buy U.S. products is a really good idea, and it's also the right thing to do, and it's very much about who America is, and so I will use any of those arguments or all three of those arguments uh, to say that Actually, our U.S. government investing in foreign assistance and investing in the kind of work that Save the Children does is a good investment for us to make. Has your work gotten harder with the new administration in terms of either dialing back the resources the U.S. government's putting forth, whether it's domestic programs yeah. or famine aid, yeah. or even the message coming from our president on down in terms yeah. of uh, the nativist uh, mentality yes. that we need to, to protect our own? I'd say we've had to fight harder for kids around the world. Um, I would say that we've been pretty successful on that side. And, you know, kids is not a partisan issue. Uh, you can find plenty of Republicans and plenty of Democrats that actually believe in the kind of work that Save the Children does. And so we do a lot of work with Congress. I think Congress has been really strong in you know, pushing back on some things with this administration, frankly, to say, you know, these are not, these are, this is, this is not the direction that we want to go, and we do care about these kinds of issues, and we do care about kids. And so I think, you know, we would say this is not a partisan issue, and we can, you know, do this kind of work under any administration. But we have had to fight very, very hard. I would say. You've mentioned it's not a partisan issue, but lawmakers have their constituents back home yep. who may say, why give money yes. to South Sudan yep. Yep. and not Mississippi? Yep. And, and they do. And some of those constituents will, you know, push back and say, we really want you to invest in the United States. And that's when we come back and say, yes, and invest in kids. And this is what you have to do. But there are others who see those arguments, as I said, about this is the right, this is a smart thing. It's about national security. It's about investing. You know, it's about businesses. We have a lot of coalitions um, who work together. So we have a coalition of businesses, retired three and four star generals, and NGOs like Save the Children, who actually work in Washington, for example, and make those arguments. And we found that that is really successful. Um, but it isn't easy. And, and there are lots of people who will say we should be investing much more here at home. Um, to which we would say, yes, and here's the poorest states where we should actually be doing that. What about the commitment to how you're spending the dollars, uh, whether uh, there are people in the audience who are curious about the breakdown or yeah. our listeners who will be uh, hearing this interview, um, what assurances can you give that the money that you're uh, accepting in donations is being spent more on programs than yes. overhead? The reason I bring that up is many of us are aware of the NPR ProPublica joint investigation a few years ago on American Red Cross. Yes. And whenever a disaster happens, whether it's a hurricane uh, in Texas or what we're seeing in Puerto Rico, 
People are confused about what can I do? Who do I trust my money to? How do I know it's making it to the people that need it? Yeah. And, and I think those ratios are really important. And Save the Children has good ratios. Our ratios for program spend uh, range between 86 and 90% over the last 10 years. So when they go up some years, when you have big emergencies, they actually typically you haven't spent as much on fundraising because people actually come to you. So in those years, you typically get more uh, money to programs. So I think our ratios are very good, um, but I actually would say that that's not the most important thing to look at. When you're, when you're looking at an organization, the most important thing is to look at the impact that they have. And if that organization can't tell you about the impact that they're having, if they can't tell you about here's a country where we work and here's the impact that we're having. I'll give you an example again from our domestic programs. We actually track the reading skills of those kids that we work with in elementary school. We track the readiness of school of the young children that we work with in a Head Start program or an early education program. We can actually give you that data and if people can't tell you about the impact, that's when I think you should really question um, whether or not that's the right organization. Let's talk about Puerto Rico. Because yes. I, I believe there were Save the Children um, staff members involved in the response. Uh, you know, we know today that there's 50,000 yes. uh, without power still. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating for many Americans, especially here in Connecticut, when you have such a, a high Puerto Rican population, yes. loved ones who are still there, or they are displaced and they're living here in Connecticut. So I'm curious about when you talk about impact, what yes. impact has Save the Children had in Puerto Rico? So we actually debated for a while whether or not to respond to the Hurricane um, Maria in Puerto Rico. And part of it was we had just responded to Harvey and Irma in Florida, so Texas and Florida, and those three hurricanes were, I think, five weeks maybe apart, four to five weeks, so one after the other after the other, and frankly, by the time Maria hit, we actually weren't sure we had enough people uh, to actually uh, mount a response, but we decided that we really should try to do that, and so we sent a team to Puerto Rico, and we, our initial, um, as we do in most emergencies, our initial response is about emergencies, supplies, and getting people things that they need. So it was about water, baby food, diapers, wipes, um, literally anything, clothing for children, very focused on kids and families, um, families with small children particularly, and trying to do whatever we could to get those supplies to kids. And that was a really chaotic uh, first couple of months, actually, of doing that work, working why, with FEMA. Why chaotic? Well, most emergencies it's chaotic, but um, uh, Puerto Rico, particularly difficult, it's an island, so getting stuff there is in itself difficult, right? And Houston, uh, for example, in comparison, you know, Houston, there were places, San Antonio, there were plenty of supplies, there was plenty of availability, there were warehouses, there were trucks, there were things that we could easily get into Houston once the water kind of subsided just a little bit, you could get supplies in to San Antonio. Puerto Rico is much harder, you have to fly it, you have to put it on a boat, you have to get it there. Um, the environment itself was really difficult. I went to visit about a week after, and the devastation was unbelievable, I would say, in Puerto Rico. Like, 
like actually not too many emergencies. I've, I've seen many, many with Save the Children and the power of this storm, you could literally see the path that this hurricane had taken across the island. Um, there were very poor uh, communities in the interior of Puerto Rico, especially, who had very little to start with, like you see in many emergencies, but really hard to reach. The roads were all out. So just getting things to people was incredibly difficult. So the early days, that's really what it was about. Within the, couple, the first couple weeks, we really switched to one of our big areas of focus in any emergency, which is trying to get kids back into school. And you might think, oh, that kind of sounds like a luxury when people don't have electricity, they don't have maybe enough water or enough food. But school for kids is a really important way to get some kind of normal back. So getting kids to school gives them something that feels like normal. And that is really important in those early days after an emergency, particularly when kids are living in shelters, they're living in you know, a house with no roof anymore but a tarp. You know, giving them something that feels like normal is, is really important. So that's the work that we started then quickly to do, and that's really what we're focused on now. How would you rate the U.S. government's response to what happened in Puerto Rico? Well, I, I think I would say very rough at the beginning. So again, I was there probably a week and a half after the hurricane and went to visit the convention center where FEMA had set up shop. And it wasn't that we didn't have people and resources there. There were lots of people and resources. I think um, getting help to the places that were hardest to reach, that was difficult. I think the federal government has Frankly, a lot of Americans didn't, I think, think of Puerto Rico as part of the United States, really. And so I think that really, we had to really change our way of thinking that, you know, this was part of the United States and the things that we had just done in Houston or in Florida were things that we really needed to, to do in an even bigger way in Puerto Rico. This is where we live. Today, we're talking with Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children. Our conversation was recorded earlier this week. I asked her how her organization keeps its staff safe. In January, ISIS gunmen attacked a Save the Children office in Afghanistan, killing staff members. So that is a really huge priority for us, and it isn't easy. Um, we actually do spend time on security. So we have people who, in each of our country offices, we have somebody who's in charge of staff security, and that's what they do. Sometimes if it's a small office, they might do that kind of part-time. If it's a very large office and a very dangerous place like, like Afghanistan, we have full-time people who spend all their time on making sure that our staff uh, stay safe. But it doesn't always work. And um, Afghanistan was a really, really sad example where we lost four people and were targeted directly by ISIS. And that is because people don't always want you to be educating girls in their country or making sure that really poor communities get the health care that they deserve or any of those other things that we do. So that is, I think, really important. And we spend time, we spend money, we spend energy on that uh, issue of staff security because it's the thing that allows us to continue to do the work that we do. And even in really difficult places, you know, it's important to be there. Uh, the, the most... I think touching thing to me about what happened in Afghanistan is right after that, 
our regional director was in the country and he went to meet with the families who had lost. So we lost four, um, four men. Three of them were fathers. Uh, I think there were 11 children between the four of them. One was a 25-year-old new employee of Save the Children. But when our regional director went to visit the families, they all said, don't leave. Don't leave Afghanistan. Don't leave Jalalabad. And don't stop doing the work that Save the Children's doing because that would be a win for the bad guys. And we don't want that to happen. And we need Save the Children there. So I think our, our staff and our families understand that this, isn't, this, this can be da very dangerous work. And we have plenty and plenty of examples, unfortunately. But they really believe, I think, strongly that we need to try to do everything we can to keep people safe but not stop working in dangerous places. So we're talking about ensuring the safety of your staff, but on the flip side, what kinds of guidelines, rules do you have in place to protect the people that yes. your staff is there to help? And the reason yes. I bring this up is there have been reports yes. of uh, other organizations like Oxfam in Haiti and uh, hiring uh, sex workers there the Save the Children UK umbrella organization having some issues with leadership in the past few years with how harassment and misconduct allegations were handled. So I'm curious how, um, how you keep the people that you're trying uh, to help from being exploited. Yeah, so we do take this really seriously, both in keeping our staff safe and in keeping the people that we serve safe, the, the families and children that we serve safe. And so child safeguarding is what we is what we call keeping keeping kids safe. And there are lots of things in place to keep kids safe. Um, we obviously don't tolerate any kinds of abuse of children who are by our staff or our partners in a country where we work, or here in the United States for that matter. And we have lots of things in place to try to make sure that those things get reported. You know, we publish a report every year that talks about those uh, cases and talks about what we've done and talks about the actions that we've taken. And I think that is, you know, one of the most important things uh, for Save the Children in terms of our operations and what we do. So that, that is critically important, and obviously if we find somebody who's abusing children or taking advantage of our families or you know, doing any of those kinds of things, they're, they're, they're dismissed, and we don't have people working at Save the Children. And that, that can actually be hard, because in some countries where we work, you know, it's okay to have sex with a 14-year-old. If you work for Save the Children, it's not okay. And it doesn't matter if it's okay in your country or your community or that's considered normal. It's not okay if you work for Save the Children. So that can be really difficult, but you have to have those kinds of things in place, uh, those kinds of policies in place. And then when it comes to keeping our staff safe, again, sexual harassment, we have spent a lot of time on that issue, actually very recently. And one of the things that we're doing right now is making sure that employees themselves are leading those efforts. So obviously it has to start from the top and I'm really serious about making sure that we don't have any incidents of sexual harassment in the organization. You're always gonna have some, by the way, no matter what you do, but those are reported and we take the correct action and we do something. But it's really important for me to have this led by our employees themselves because they're the ones who really, I think, understand best what it's gonna take to have that kind of an environment where everybody feels safe. 
and so we're doing lots of work um, with lots of engagement with our employees and they're very and both men and women which is really important and I think we've gotten an overwhelming response that yes we want to be part of making this these kinds of changes. You mentioned uh, this work has been going on recently. Is that because mm -hmm. of the UK uh, incident or because of this wave of the Me Too movement where uh, we're beginning to see, depending on what industry we're talking about, this is a, a real yeah. problem? Yeah, I, I think it's both. I think it's more awareness. I think it's, um, and it's not that we haven't had these policies in place and these, the, these kinds of reporting mechanisms and all those things, but it's the awareness that that really isn't enough. You actually have to change the culture of the organization in a much bigger way to change how people are treated, how they feel about reporting things. You really have to change those things. Policies, practices, hotlines are really not going to do it on their own. So I think it's the Me Too movement. It's the incidences that have happened in other parts of Save the Children. It's a couple things that have happened here in the U.S. where we've gotten employees from other places that have had these issues and we haven't known about it. So it really is looking across the board and trying to figure out, with lots of other people in our sector, by the way, not doing that just in a vacuum, but doing it together with others. How do we change cultures? I did want to bring up uh, what's happening in Gaza. Yes. Uh, we're hearing uh, thousands are injured, yep. um, uh, you know, more than 60 killed. Yeah. And often, um, well, not often, but in this particular incident, we're hearing that children are yes. the ones that are being injured and killed. How is Save the Children responding to that? Yeah. So um, first, I think we're, you know, obviously appalled at, at children being killed in any kind of conflict, um, and certainly this one too. We have worked in Gaza for 30 years, so we actually have Save the Children staff inside Gaza, and we've worked there for a very long time. And I have not been there for a couple of years, um, but I can tell you it's a really, really tough place to be a child or to be a mother or a father with children. Really difficult. Um, so I certainly, you know, my heart goes out to those that are engaged in the protests, and um, I would just call for, you know, the protection of children, which is what we always do, and I would say, you know, we're, we're standing, you know, with those that, that want to peacefully protest, um, and really our condolences to those who have lost children. It's, it's that, that's, there's never any um, reason to be killing children. How do you stay out of the politics? Because yeah. uh, your staff, again, are seeing the atrocities that are happening, yep. whether it's in Gaza or in Bangladesh uh, with the Rohingya, mm -hmm. uh, or you know, so often we hear about the, the Syrian refugee crisis and, and all of the, the refugee camps and, uh, in Jordan. Yes. I mean, you're seeing what's happening, and yet I'm just curious how you're able to stay out of the politics of it. Yeah. So we don't always stay out of the politics, um, but we always take the position that our role is to be a voice for children, to tell what's actually going on. So um, because we're on the ground in all of, almost all of these places, anywhere where there's conflict and these things are going on, usually Save the Children is there. So we see our role as reporting what's actually going on and what's happening and being a voice for kids. And, you know, if people see that as political, then they see that as political. But um, we try to, and depending on the 
on the situation will either um, do that in a public way or will do that in a private way. And it all comes down to what do we think is going to be most effective to change things that they're actually going to be better for kids. Sometimes that's doing the public advocacy and the public calling out of what's going on for kids. Sometimes that's doing it more privately and doing it, you know, not in the public eye, but trying to get to the right people with the stories and the examples of what's happening to children. And do you so think we you're do both. Being, do you think that you're being heard? Uh, in many cases, we're being heard. I would say not in all. Um, and that's, you know, that's going to happen. And we don't, as I said, we don't give up, whether it's here in the United States talking about, you know, poor kids in Mississippi. And, the, and you'll see in this report that we are putting out in a couple weeks, you know, we call out those states that have the absolute worst statistics for children. And we're going to call on, you know, officials in those states to do something about it. And we're going to call on South Sudan and, and people in the Middle East to protect kids, you know, wherever they're not being protected. Do you think the president's hearing your message? Uh, some days I do and some days I don't. So, um, but it, you know, we look for people who actually do understand that message. And I think, um, you know, given, as I said, the recent investments that have been made uh, uh, for kids here in the United States, I know that it's not that they don't care about children. Um, so we're going to keep making those arguments and keep pushing and looking for people who are champions uh, for kids. And there's always, in any administration, there are always children that are. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children, a global charity based in Fairfield, Connecticut. You can join the conversation, too. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Carolyn Miles is my guest today. She's president and CEO of Save the Children, based in Fairfield, Connecticut. Under her leadership, the group has doubled the number of kids it helps here in the U.S. and abroad. In 2015, Miles was inducted into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame, and she's been named one of the 50 world's greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. I spoke with her at Ridgefield Playhouse earlier this week, where Miles also answered some audience questions. First, I want to just thank you for sharing about your organization, and I really admire your work. Um, I am very interested in this idea of partnership, too, between public and private sector. Um, I have a public health background, and it seems like if you graduate from public health school and go into the private sector, it's almost just like, oh, you know, you've sold out or something. And <laughs> it's just this feeling that um, there's this uh, competition or mm. dis- there's so much disparity between the public sector and the private sector, whereas now that I've worked on both sides of it, I find, you know, people who are passionate about helping others and advancing healthcare, you know, on both sides of the spectrum. But um, I was curious if you could share about how you've drawn people together. I know you said kids are, you know, not partisan. Everybody wants, you know, kids to succeed. So that's one thing that makes it easier, I think, for an organization like Save the Children. But what are those things that you are, you know, are essential for drawing these two sides that are often, you know, turn into opponents when I think they do have common goals. So, 
Save the Children is a great believer in uh, partnerships with the private sector and with corporations. And I would say more and more of our work that we do, particularly in health, is our partnerships with uh, public and private sector. So I'll give you a good example. Um, we have a program, so one of, the, one of the big killers of children is pneumonia in the developing world. So we all think of pneumonia as being kind of a old people die of pneumonia. But in the developing world, pneumonia is the number one disease, the single disease that kills the most kids, almost a million kids every year. So we've got lots of skill sets in community health and in making sure that kids get into care, but diagnosing pneumonia in these poor, low-resource settings is really tough. So we partnered with Philips, who developed a monitor that you strap to the baby's chest, and it actually, it's really hard to count the breaths of a tiny baby when they're breathing really fast, but that's a diagnosis for pneumonia. So rather than trying to do it with a stopwatch, you can put this strap around the baby's chest and it will automatically give you a reading of whether or not it, it looks like that baby has pneumonia based on, based on their respiratory rate. So we can't, we could never develop that monitor, right? I mean, we just don't have the capabilities. Philips is interested in eventually marketing that, right? We're interested because it can help us diagnose pneumonia in these really poor rural places. We're testing that monitor in places where you know, it might not be charged up for, you know, a week, right? Can it still work? It might be dusty and dirty and it might be really humid or really hot in these communities. Will it hold up? So we're testing that monitor with Philips. So that's just one example. There are many, many, many examples. There's a set of skills that the private sector has which Save the Children will never have. And we will never be successful in ending preventable deaths of kids unless we partner together on these things where we're trying to get to these really hard to reach kids and we don't have all those skills to be able to do that, to develop new products, to get the vaccines that are going to hold up in these kinds of settings. You know, we, we've got to partner with the private sector. So I would say over the 20 years that I've worked at Save the Children, that has become more and more important every year and will continue to be as we go forward. Uh, thank you, uh, Carolyn. I, I'm here because I've been inspired um, by your career story, actually, and that's part of my question. I'm I'm an experienced executive um, with a, a blue chip background in strategy and change management, but I've reached a point in my career where I really want to deploy my passion and expertise to better our world, and I'm on a journey to transition from the profit world to the nonprofit world. And I have two questions. Yeah. The first is, what differences and similarities have you seen between the profit and not-for-profit? And two, what recommendations would you make to help make the transition from a for-profit to a not-profit world? Yeah. So I would start with the similarities, and there actually are an awful lot of them, um, particularly for an organization like Save the Children. You know, we have HR people, and we have finance people, and we have strategy people and we have program people and so those skill sets actually we have you know fundraisers which are marketers basically those um, skill sets actually are quite similar I would say the culture is really different and that took me a little while to kind of figure out because I came from kind of a hierarchical organization like American Express and then a very flat one when I did a startup and um, 
nonprofits tend to be very consensus driven, and so you at first are not quite sure how anything ever gets decided, but it does. And what I found at Save the Children is, what drives decision making at Save the Children is, is what you're suggesting going to actually further the mission of helping kids, or is it not? So, and if it is, you can get people to do almost anything, is what I found. So, I think, but it is a, it is a much more about people really want to be part of the, that decision making uh, process. So you have to think about the culture. Um, the advice I would have, I talked about it a little bit earlier, don't try to do anything. Do what you're really good at and look for an opportunity in a nonprofit that is open to corporate, uh, to, to for-profit people coming in, and there are a lot of them now, but look for a job that is aligned with the skills that you have and don't give up because it's, it, it is about timing sometimes. But really look for what you can bring to the organization, very specific skills that you can bring. And I think that's where it actually works. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn, before we close, uh, this is part of our Making Her Story series. Yes. And uh, something that we've always thought was important to ask uh, women from very different backgrounds. You know, what advice do you have for young people, yes. especially young women, who are trying to figure out you know, what are they going to do uh, yeah. uh, with uh, their lives in terms of a career path? Uh, there's lots of uh, different pressures and mm -hmm. um, well-intentioned uh, people who have advice for them on what yeah. they should be doing. What would you tell them? Well, I, I guess one thing I would tell them is don't try to figure it all out at the beginning um, because it really is not a straight road. And I think my career is a good example of it not being a straight road, but so many careers are not. So don't worry about figuring it out right from the beginning um, and be open to opportunities that come along because that's actually going to probably be the way that gets you to the thing that makes you the happiest. Carolyn Miles, President and CEO of Save the Children, thank you so much for talking with us this evening. We thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. My pleasure. Where We Live's Making Her Story series is produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Ridgefield Playhouse, University of St. Joseph, Carmen Baskoff, Beth Messina, Sarah Filippis, Leslie Silverman, Jaziel Millette, Nancy Bauer, Rosemary Zukowski, Larry Reming, and Catherine Boyce. Learn more about our show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks for listening.